Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. It's the final episode of 2022, so we're looking back at our favourite genetic stories of the year, plus some bonus bits from our interviews that have never been heard before. Don't ask me how, but somehow we have reached the end of 2022, and it's been yet another year with an unprecedented number of unprecedented events. COVID-19 continued to circulate around the world, Russia invaded Ukraine, and the Queen died. But in the world of genetics, there's been plenty of good news stories this year too. Back in January, surgeons performed the first ever operation to transplant a heart from a genetically modified pig into a human, which we covered in episode 8, Have a Heart. The 2022 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine went to Swedish geneticist Svante Perbo for his work on the genomes of extinct human species, which we covered in episode 21, Past to Present. And, of course, 2022 marked the bicentennial of the birth of Gregor Mendel, which, you guessed it, we covered in episode 16, Happy 200th Birthday, Mendel. One of my favourite parts of producing the Genetics Unzit podcast is getting to chat to so many amazing researchers and just geeking out with them about their niche areas of interest. And one of my least favourite parts is having to leave some fantastic answers on the cutting room floor, as there simply isn't enough time in each episode to include everything. Well, as a Christmas treat, we've prepared a selection box of some of the best bits from our guests that never made it into the final episodes. And to kick us off, I'm taking you back to May and episode 10, which was Squid Game, the strange science of cephalopods. I'll let you in on a little secret. Kat and I had both just watched Squid Game, thought it would make a good title for an episode, and just kind of hoped that we'd find some interesting stories about genetics and cephalopods. Thankfully, squid scientists are doing some fascinating research, so not only did I get to find out about sending baby squid into space from Jamie Foster, I also got to chat to the unapologetically enthusiastic squid superfan Sarah McAnulty. Here's a little snippet of our chat that sadly got cut for time. Something that Carrie told me about, putting 3D glasses on a cuttlefish, what's that all about? Oh my God. That's all about like understanding how these animals perceive their environments because a a huge amount of research that goes into cephalopods is understanding how they use this dynamic color changing skin to really, really effectively camouflage in a lot of different situations. Really effectively. I finally got to see an octopus when I was diving in the Red Sea. It's not the color. Everyone tells you about the color change. It's the texture change. I know. It just looked like coral. It was bizarre. Yeah. So those texture things, I call them like extreme goosebumps. They're called papillae. And yeah, they allow the animal to just do color 
texture, the whole thing. They're really good at it. But this group of animals is famously so colorful and obviously camouflage is to do with color. I've read that they can't even see color. They can't even see color. I know. It's unbelievable. So here's the thing. I think we forget how much more color we see on land than is available in the ocean. Like we can see these bright reds, yellows, oranges, and blues and greens and browns and everything really effectively because the air that we hang out in doesn't absorb a lot of that. But in the ocean, like everything just kind of looks blue after a while. So if unless you're in incredibly shallow water, it's less relevant, not irrelevant, but less relevant to be able to see your reds and yellows and oranges as everything else. And once you get, you know, 30, 50 meters down, good luck seeing color. So it's not as relevant to them as it would be to us or it would be to like a bird. But then why do they bother having such color-based adaptations like camouflage? And don't they do like visual signaling with each other based on the color of their skin? They do. Yeah. So a lot of them communicate via the patterns on their back. And we also think that they're using the polarization of light in addition to the wavelength or color of light in order to communicate with each other. We can't see polarized light. Everything just kind of looks the same direction to us. But they have the ability to see the polarization of the light. You know, they can see that and they can't really see the wavelengths as well. And so a lot of the effectiveness of their camouflage really comes down to like lights and darks. So they're breaking up their body pattern using big chunks of dark pattern and white pattern. That's one of the things that they do. I don't really know how they're so effective at matching when they can't see color, but they seem to manage it. And that's one of the big we don't knows that's still left in squid biology. And it's a big we don't know because, yeah, I was showing this picture of cuttlefish wearing old school 3D glasses, the yeah, the blue red ones. But nowadays, modern 3D films are all done with polarized light. So you're telling me that not even now in 2022 can squids watch a decent 3D film. I suppose. They just get super confused because they'd be processing both polarized things in a different way. The question of like how the different visual systems and animals like translates to their perception and like what they see in their mind is such a cool black box kind of question. Like knowing that a mantis shrimp has what, like 12, I think, cones, so color receptors. And so if we had their like hardware with our processing power, what would we be able to see? I think it would be totally amazing. But they have different processing power in their brains. So we think that they really can't see a lot more color than we can just because they've got all of the ability to take the information in of what color is there, but not the ability to kind of like multiplex it all together in their brains and get that perception. What a waste. What a waste. I know. Because you think of the difference that in humans, the difference between having two cones and three is the difference between red, green, color blindness and full vision. Exactly. Yeah. So add another nine onto that. Uh, Yeah, the world would be a wild place to live in for sure. Maybe even our brains couldn't cope with it. Maybe that's why mantis shrimps have adapted to not have their brains blown up by so much colour. Exactly. That was Sarah McAnulty. And you can listen to the rest of the conversation in episode 10. And there's a link in the show notes. Next up, we're travelling back to July and episode 14, which was genes, brains and the mind. How much of your personality is encoded in your DNA? 
Of all the episodes I produced this year, no other has thrown me into quite such an existential crisis as this one, as geneticist, neuroscientist and author Kevin Mitchell and I grappled with questions like, where do our personalities come from? Can we change who we are, or are our personalities fixed from birth? And does free will even exist? You know, the small stuff. But to understand all of this, we first had to grapple with another big concept, heritability. We're talking about inheriting things. Big question for you. What is heritability? Yeah, that's a tricky one. Because it really... It's not something I've thought about a lot, and it really takes a while to get your head around it. It does, and and it's unfortunate. It's a super technical statistical term, but it doesn't sound like it should be. It sounds... No, it's like if something's heritable, it means that I'm going to get it from my parents. Yeah, so it sounds like the word heredity, right? Heritability, Mm -hmm. and, and it's not. It has a very technical term. It doesn't apply to individuals at all. It gets back to this example I was talking about earlier of looking at your herd of cattle and saying, you know, when I breed them together, how much of a a difference do I get in my trait from one generation to the next? And if you're looking at milk yield, you can breed for it, right? So if you select the ones with highest milk yield, then the next generation will have even higher. Whereas if you're, you know, if you have Jersey cattle with black and white patches on them, and you select for black and white patches where they are, that's actually not heritable, right? That's a, an expression of randomness. And of course, you can have other things that are just in, due to environmental differences. So what heritability is, statistically speaking, is the percentage of variance in some trait that you observe in a population that is attributable to genetic differences within that population. And do those genetic differences, do they have to be in the genes? Yes. Because yeah. this is the thing, it's... We have all of this random side of things, but then also we have the environmental side of things. And when we start talking about human behavior, one of the things that you argue is that the environment we seek out is itself partly genetic. Like we are drawn towards certain environments. So does that count as genetic or does that count as environmental? So it's really, really tricky. And so when the point of things like twin studies and the uh, family studies, and even just studies across the general population, as well as in animals, is to try and separate or dissociate genetic variants from environmental variants, or, but let's just say non-genetic, because it could be developmental. And those can be very successful. It's not reasonable for a given individual to say, you know, this much of my height, say, or my intelligence comes from my genes and this much from my environment. That's a nonsensical statement to apply to an individual. But it is a reasonable statement to say this much of the variance in height that we observe across a population is due to differences in, say, nutrition, whereas this percentage of the variance is due to differences in genetics. And, you know, that becomes interesting because there's not a right answer to that. You may have some populations where there's lots of variation in in nutrition, and that becomes a big source of differences in height, whereas other populations where everybody's getting, you know, as much nutrition as they want, really, it's not a limiting factor, then genetic differences become a bigger contributor to what makes people different in height. So what that means is that the heritability is, by definition, tracking differences that originate in genetic variation. However, that doesn't mean 
that there's a proximal biological mechanism that underpins the variation that you see. It could be mediated by environmental behaviors or you know, outcomes like that. So all it says is that the primary source of the variation is genetic. It doesn't say that the mechanism by which it is expressed doesn't involve the environment at all. And the other thing is that frankly, the mathematical models that people use when trying to dissociate genetic variants from environmental variants, often you just have to make an assumption that those two things are not correlated with each other, that there's no covariance between them. And in fact, we know that that's a simplifying assumption that doesn't fully hold a lot of the time. So things get more and more complicated. And, you know, for example, what we see if we look across the population at things like the genetics of educational attainment, where the phenotype is just how far does somebody go in in education? Some of the genetic effects that we see there are intrinsic to the person themselves, but some of them are actually due to the fact that they share genes with their parents and their parents' educational attainment affects the environment in which the child grows up and the sort of social capital that they have, which enables them to maybe reach their intellectual potential through, or academic potential through the educational system. But that's not because they share genes, that's because they share a family environment. Well, but partly the reason they share the family environment or the reason the environment is the way that it is, is partly due to, to the genetics of the parents. Oh, I see. So you get this trans sort of you know generational i don't know how you cope with all of these different it seems that everything affects everything else well yeah and you know the people try to tease these things out and put exact numbers on them my own feeling is that trying to be too exact about it is sort of pushing it further than we should you can get a sort of a broad sense that some variation in in these traits is down to genetic differences and some of it is non-genetic and you know you can use some of that knowledge to try and tease out what the non-genetic components might be. And maybe they're developmental and still kind of innate to the person. And maybe they're really experiential or environmental. You know, so the way I think about these kinds of analyses is uh, as tools to broadly get at those categories. And I don't really get too hung up on whether it's you know something is 35% heritable or 45% heritable. Those aren't real things they're highly dependent on the population you're looking at and all kinds of all kinds of assumptions that was kevin mitchell and you can listen to the rest of the interview in episode 14 sometimes when i'm interviewing researchers for these podcasts they'll say some throwaway remark that just begs to be explored deeper that was certainly the case with ulrika bauer from our recent episode about carnivorous plants, Little Shop of Genetic Horrors. We were chatting about how pitcher plants catch insects in a different way to sundews or Venus flytraps. And Ulrika just casually said this. People always are like, oh, does the lid knows when it's captured something? With one exception, which has moving parts, there's no moving parts in pitcher plants. Which one has a moving part and which part moves? So there's one species in Borneo where the lid moves and the lid, it doesn't actively move, but it acts as a spring, almost like an inverted springboard. So when a raindrop falls on the top of the lid, it causes a really fast and really vivid vibration, which kicks the insect that sits underneath the lid into the picture. 
So a little insect is trying to get shelter from the rain. It's got a fairly good footing, but then a little bit of a jiggle and it falls in. Exactly. And the fairly good footing is a good point because you, you basically need three things for this to work. And we've just done a bit of, of evolutionary work, which isn't quite there yet to talk about. But we've done a bit of work on showing how this can potentially evolve. You need three things to come together for this mechanism to work, right? You need a lid that acts as a spring, so it needs mechanical properties that turn it into a spring. So if you start flicking it, it actually jerks an insect into the trap. You need a special surface coating underneath. So it needs to be a little bit slippery so that, because insects are really good at holding on to smooth surfaces, right? So if you see flies walking up glass windows, you know that they are really strong at holding on to smooth surfaces. So you need this specialized surface that makes it a little bit more treacherous. So if you flick it, the insect is likely to fall, but it needs to be grippy enough that the insect can actually go there and hang upside down in the first place because if you can't access this, you don't trap anything. And then the last one is trivial. You need a lid that is more or less horizontal because if it's at an angle, your insect still gets kicked off, but it doesn't land in the picture. It lands next to it, right? So you need to get the direction right as well. And there's this one species in Borneo that has all of that nailed. And we've got a couple of, of research papers published on that showing that, yeah, it contributes to the trapping in the species. If you mess with that mechanism, it doesn't work anymore. If you take any of these contributing elements away if you like wipe off the surface coating or if you mess with with the springiness then it doesn't work anymore so you really need all of these things and Ulrika even sent me videos of ants being flicked into the pictures when water hits the lid which are put in the show notes along with links to all the episodes I've mentioned in September Kat interviewed Amy Webb and Andrew Hessel about the future of synthetic biology and genetic engineering in episode 18, The Genesis Machine. They discussed all sorts of sci-fi possibilities, such as what would happen if someone hacked into the computers of a DNA synthesis lab and created a cyber biosecurity incident, or a restaurant that served lab-grown meat from endangered species. But despite all this futuristic thinking, both Andrew and Amy think there's a lot to marvel at in the present day. We've only had molecular biology for a few decades. The human genome, our code, was just red, you know, and we didn't put the last dot on it until earlier this year, but really the publication was 2003. So we're... We, we've made incredible strides very quickly, but there's so much further to go. And right now, the bottleneck in my world is that it's still really expensive and slow to make larger segments of DNA. And as soon as we get past that bottleneck and get a, a thousand fold or greater improvement in price performance, that's the game changer. Because now Amy can literally say, make me a vaccine. I'm going, you know, I'm going to Brazil. I need updates. And a home printer will just make, you know, the various constructs. And her body is the manufacturing plant. I think so much of biology has become invisible to us, mundane. You know, we stop at a Rite Aid or a Walgreens or a drugstore to get, you know, get a flu shot or to get a test. And the way that the process that's involved 
in sending and recreating and reading and, you know, synthesizing, all of that stuff has kind of become invisible to people. And for that reason, we don't really stop and marvel. We don't consider we, you know, we are, we have lost our sense of awe. And I think that is both a shame, but also going to potentially be a problem for us going forward, because what it's going to start to feel like little by little is that these innovations are coming out of nowhere, that they're sort of suddenly here. You know, nothing in science is suddenly here, as all of us know, right? It is the result of and the compounding effect of hours and days and weeks spent in labs and researching and, you know, learning and all of these other things. But we're moving into this era where change is going to start feeling faster than is going to be comfortable to us. And the way to get comfortable with the uncertainty that's ahead is to just keep your eyes open to signals in the present and to be contemplating what's happening. That was Andrew Hessel and Amy Webb, and you can listen to more in episode 18. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And if you're stuck for low-cost present ideas to give your friends this Christmas, why not give them the gift of a podcast recommendation? They get hours of entertainment, you get the warm fuzzy glow of the gift of giving. It's a win-win. We like to bring you not only interviews on this podcast, but also longer stories where we can really get stuck into the nitty-gritty of a topic. This year, we've looked at the genetics of faces and fingertips, Turing patterns and junk DNA, the random wobble, cannibalism, bees and behaviour, to name just a few. Way back in March, in episode 5, Kat looked at the secret lives of cancer cells, telling the story of how scientists first discovered that cancer cells could have sex, which she originally wrote for the online science magazine Neolife. Later on in the year, the Medical Journalists Association awarded Kat the Gordon McVie Award for reporting cancer research for her article, describing it as innovative, intriguing and very cleverly written. Needless to say, she's very proud of it. So we're going to play it again in all its glory. Sometime around 2009, Andre Marisic was staring down the microscope in the lab at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, checking in on his latest experiment aimed at understanding how cancerous and healthy cells interact together in tumours, when he made a provocative discovery. Cancer cells were having sex. The experimental setup was straightforward, if sophisticated. First, mix different populations of cells together, label each one with different coloured fluorescent tags, red for the cancer cells, green for the healthy ones, and then watch as they go about their daily lives. Slowly, he scanned across the plastic dish, monitoring the cells as they passed under the lens. Red, green, green, red, red, green, then orange. His first reaction was to ignore it and move on. 
Strange things can happen in the world of lab-grown cells, and this orange blob was more than likely to be an irrelevant artefact. But still he kept coming across unusually large orange cells, carrying both fluorescent markers. His first thought was that two cells must have fused together to create some kind of hybrid. So he started looking more closely for evidence of cell fusions. Were the orange cells larger than the others? Did they have more than the regular amount of DNA? The more he looked, the more he found evidence of cancer cells fusing with healthy cells or with each other. Not many, but enough to make him think there was something weird going on. When he started asking around, colleagues told him they'd seen something similar, but it didn't mean anything. I first heard of Marisic's discovery while researching my latest book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life. During those early stages of the writing process, I would occasionally hear hints of something so transgressively bizarre that it made my head spin. Cancer cells were having sex. Cell fusions happen all the time in the body and in the lab. For years, biologists have studied their occurrence during the formation of osteoclasts, large cells that break down and remodel bone tissues, in the placenta in early pregnancy, or during infection with certain viruses like HIV. Spotting this process occurring in the unusual environment of a laboratory dish isn't so strange. Unusually large cells have also been observed in cancer for more than 150 years, going back to the early German pathologist Rudolf Virchow, who diligently sketched the curious bodies provided with large nuclei and nucleoli, which are described as the specific polymorphous cells of cancer that he noticed within a tumour. Taking this idea further, in 1911, his fellow countryman Otto Eichel proposed that cancer might spread through the body through tumour cells fusing with immune cells. Even though Eichel was wrong in the details, his concept wasn't far off. Cancer cells have also been caught completely engulfing healthy cells, a phenomenon known as empiripolysis, and fusions between cancer and immune cells have been found in several tumour types, including pancreatic cancer and melanoma. However, these fusions were thought to be terminal. The resulting freakish hybrid cells were believed to be unable to grow and destined to die. While plenty of oncology researchers, staring at tumour sections through their microscopes, saw these Frankenstein-fused cancer cells through the years, most of them were not interested. They simply adjusted their scopes and turned their focus elsewhere. Marisic couldn't move on. He was stuck wondering why these cell fusions kept occurring and what role they could be playing in the cancer process. In 2015, he left Dana-Farber to set up his own lab at the Moffitt Cancer Centre in Tampa, Florida, hiring a young Ukrainian researcher, Daria Miroshnichenko, to start working on the problem. One of the first challenges was developing a way to accurately detect and measure the extent of cell fusion events. 
Scanning through millions of cells with a microscope was too time-consuming and inaccurate, while automated cell sorting or DNA sequencing techniques actively discarded ambiguous or mixed data resulting from exactly the kind of cell fusion events Marasik and Miroshnichenko were looking for. They were using a new technique called image-based cytometry, which whizzes thousands of cells past a tiny camera, snapping a photo of each one as it goes. Miroshnichenko found a small but significant proportion of cell fusions after growing different types of cancer cells together with tumour-associated fibroblast cells for three days. One thing they noticed right away was that some of the fused cells were far more active than might have been expected. While many couldn't divide, a small number of fused cells were able to proliferate, both in the lab and when transplanted into animals. In some cases, the cell fusions divided faster and their offspring became more invasive than the original cancer cells from which they came, suggesting that they could be playing a role in the development of aggressive tumours in real-life situations. The fruit of many of these cell fusions were bulky, swollen cells, known as polyploids, which have twice the regular amount of DNA. But curiously, Miroshnichenko discovered that some of them had dropped back down to the normal amount of DNA after dividing. When she and her colleagues looked closely at the cell's genomes, they found evidence of so-called parasexual recombination, where the fused cells were swapping bits of DNA around before dividing, creating new daughter cells with genetic properties that were a mix of mum and dad. Was this, at long last, the smoking gun hard evidence of cancer cell sex? If so... It brought with it major implications for our understanding of how tumours evolve within the body and become resistant to therapy. This would be huge if true. Our current model of how cancers pick up mutations and evolve within the body relies on the assumption that cancer cells reproduce asexually, without the ability to swap genetic tips and tricks between themselves. Yet, beyond a handful of intriguing but low-profile papers there's been little hard evidence for these cellular hookups. As Marisic explains, most techniques for studying cancer cells, such as DNA sequencing or flow cytometry, actively discard any evidence of cell fusions as being errors or artefacts. Therefore, cell fusion doesn't exist. This reflects a lack of understanding in how these techniques work, he argues. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, and there's no way that the sequencing pipeline can detect cell fusions, as it's built into the algorithm to reject them. At long last, are advances in technology finally allowing researchers to catch cancer cells in the act? The entire field of cancer research and treatment is built on the idea that tumour cells can only reproduce by splitting in two. This means that any traits arising in a cancer cell due to a new genetic mutation, such as the ability to migrate around the body, invade new tissues or resist the effect of treatment, must be restricted to that one lineage of cancer cells. But if it's possible for cancer cells to fuse together, pooling their genetic assets and then dividing to create even more deadly offspring 
then this overturns what we think we know about how tumours grow and evolve within the body. Parasexual recombination doesn't introduce new mutations into a cell's DNA. Instead, it allows cells with different mutations to recombine and reshuffle their respective genetic cards to create new combinations. This fits neatly with the emerging view of cancer as a Darwinian evolutionary process, with tumour cells diversifying and picking up new genetic changes that may enable them to better survive within the environment of the body. This ability to evolve becomes even more important when the environments in which the cancer cells find themselves change. For example, with the application of treatments like chemotherapy or radiotherapy, or under conditions of reduced oxygen or nutrients, which are often found within tumours. Teaming up with computational biologist Daniel Basanta at the Moffat, Miroshnichenko and Marosik created a mathematical model to show that this parasexual activity was capable of generating the kinds of extreme genetic diversity seen in advanced metastatic cancers, which has profound implications on the evolutionary capabilities of the cells. When cancer cells can have sex, then you can generate more diversity and create new combinations of mutations that previously existed in separate lineages, Marisic says. So in order to understand cancer evolution and resistance to therapy, you have to account for the possibility that there is at least some occurrence of cell fusions. Figuring out the frequency and significance of these cell fusions will be important, Marisic explains. Because if they tend to occur between cells that are very similar to each other, then we can probably ignore it. On the other hand, in triple negative breast cancers, genetic heterogeneity is a defining feature. So you're more likely to have a fusion between genetically dissimilar cells that would have a much larger evolutionary impact. The idea that cancer cell fusions might be playing an important role in the emergence of resistance to treatment was neatly demonstrated in recent work by Kenneth Pienta and Sarah Armand at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, which also started from a curious observation down a microscope. While looking at prostate cancer cells growing in the lab, Armand would occasionally spot large polyploid cells with at least double the normal amount of DNA. That's not necessarily unusual. Cancer cells can get stuck at the point where they've copied their DNA, but are unable to split into two new cells. So they're normally overlooked and ignored by researchers. Yet, like Marisic, Armand and Pienta felt like there must be something more to these mysterious giants. To investigate further, they turned to a device nicknamed the Evolution Accelerator, a hexagonal microfluidic chip no bigger than a fingernail, which was originally designed as a way of studying the emergence of antibiotic resistance in bacterial cells. Similar to the arena in The Hunger Games, the Evolution Accelerator is a miniature landscape in which cancer cells compete with each other, created from tiny chambers linked by tunnels that are small enough for regular cancer cells to move through, but not the larger polyploid cells. Unlike cells growing in a flat plastic petri dish, which all experience the same conditions, 
the structure of the evolution accelerator meant that Armand and her colleagues could set up different zones across the chip, ranging from high concentrations of the common prostate cancer drug docetaxel on one side to low levels on the other. Then they added drug-sensitive prostate cancer cells into the arena and watched what happened. Using time-lapse microscopy, the researchers followed the cells over several weeks as they explored their silicon setting. Strikingly, more and more giant polyploid cells quickly began to appear, especially in the areas with the highest levels of docetaxel, suggesting they had evolved resistance to the treatment. Looking more closely at the footage, Armand was stunned to see that many of these polyploid cells were being created through cell fusions, rather than failures of cell division, as might be expected. And she was even more shocked as she watched these giant cells split back into smaller daughter cells, all of which were now also resistant to the drug. It was a surprise observation, but we paid attention to it, Armand says. As a trained cell biologist, realising the importance of such a critical cell type that we're usually taught to ignore for so long was frankly startling. The results from Marisic and Armen's teams are an important addition to the steadily growing pile of evidence to support the importance of fusion and polyploid cells in cancer for generating evolutionary diversity and resistance to treatment. Although it's technically much harder to spot parasexual cancer cell antics in real-life tumours, Armand is convinced that the more we look, the more we will find. If you know what to look for, you can find them, Armand explains. Once you're aware that they're there, you can just look at images of tumours, and they're present. Once you see what these cells and their progeny are able to do, it really clarifies that this is the cell state we need to understand and target if we are to have any hope of eliminating cancer. Her own moment of clarity came while watching a movie of the evolution accelerator in action, as cell after cancer cell mated, split and acquired resistance in real time. I've seen it hundreds of times, she says. And I still get goosebumps, because it's that terrifying. That's all for now and all for 2022. Thank you so much to all of our wonderful guests who have been on the show this year. Plus, some extra thanks to people we don't usually mention. To the Genetic Society for financially supporting Genetics Unzipped, to the Genetic Society Committee, especially Jonathan Pettit, Alison Willard and Christina Fonseca, and to everyone in the team at First Create the Media who works on the episodes, from the researching to the website, with an extra big shout out from me to our fabulous editor, Emma Werner. We'll be back in the new year, but until then, as always, if you want more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip, and please take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. Think of your ratings and reviews as a little holiday gift to us at the Genetics Unzipped team. 
Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Sally LePage, and Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learner societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching, and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle, and audio production was by Emma Werner. Thank you for listening, and until next year, goodbye. Boom. Nailed it.